How prepared are banks for regulatory audits that are now underway for conformance with the updated FFIEC online authentication guidance? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with George Tubin, an independent financial services and security compliance consultant who's emerged as one of the industry's leading experts on the updated authentication issued in June by the FFIEC. George, as you talk with U.S. financial institutions about the investments that they've made and plan to make in technology and solutions to help them meet the updated authentication requirements from the FFIEC, how prepared would you say that they are for the regulatory audits? Well, I, I think that all depends on what part of the industry you're looking at, uh, because you'll get very different answers. I think when you look at the larger banks, uh, the very large banks, I think they're very prepared. These are the banks that have been very involved for the past months and you know, actually years with uh, the regulators and you know, with various um, conferences and security experts in terms of trying to make their security uh, better and fraud prevention practices better. And you, know, you have to remember, too, these were the institutions that were seeing some of the more advanced attacks. So it was certainly in their interest to uh, improve their security uh, to, you know, to help them mitigate those attacks. And when you start to get down in the, the you know, smaller size financial institutions, mid-size, smaller size, these are the institutions that you know, don't have a lot of customers online relative to the, the big banks. They haven't really seen a lot of the fraud that the big banks are seeing, and therefore they, they haven't been as abreast of the situation of, of what type of uh, technologies and, and processes need to be put in place to help mitigate some of the more advanced fraud. So when the new supplement came out, they were a lot of them were very unprepared for it and a little bit confused and not quite sure why they need to do it. And then when they you know, when, when they read the actual supplement, were had a lot of questions about what it actually meant. So I think when you get down to the smaller part of the market, you'll find that uh, you know I, I'd say the majority of institutions are not 100% compliant. You know they haven't gone through and done everything. Um, so I don't think they're um, extremely prepared right now, but I think the bigger institutions, for the most part, are. So, George, in what areas have institutions made the most investments? What online threats are they most concerned about, would you say? Bigger institutions and, and smaller institutions uh, approach this very differently. You know, the bigger institutions were certainly concerned about the latest man-in-the-browser um, techniques that, you know, that, that we've heard of, so a lot of social engineering that's happening, especially threats towards the small businesses. You know, the, the business guy that ha has a small business, they're, they're focused on their business, not on the Internet and not on their, their banking, yet they're doing online banking. Um, and, you know, we've seen a lot of fraud. I say a lot, it's relative, but, you know, we've seen increasing fraud in that space and some recent court um, cases that a lot of people have read about. So a lot of the bigger banks were concerned with that and their legal departments were concerned with what happens when, when this type of fraud occurs and if it, gets, if it becomes public. Um, it's, it's not just the issue of losing money, but it's the issue of, of their market perception. So they were concerned about uh, those types of threats, the men in the browser and you know, the zero-day attacks. And they actually have been working to put, um, you know, technology in place, putting investments in place in anomaly detection and cross-channel fraud and doing a better job of fraud identification at various payment points um, along the way as well. 
the smaller institutions that haven't, for the most part, heard about these more advanced attacks because, you know, frankly, a lot of the uh, fraudsters weren't going after uh, that size bank. And when they did go after the smaller bank, you know, remember, there's there's thousands of these smaller size institutions. So even if, you know, a hundred of them had some type of advanced fraud happen to them, still the vast majority didn't. So on that lower end, I think that I've seen a lot of institutions actually making investments in out-of-band authentication, one-time password uh, fobs for their corporate customers, which they feel once it gets put in place is just a great fraud prevention technology and, and, and one that will um, get them by their audit. Um, you know, there, Of course, there are still issues with one-time password fobs, but it's certainly much better than, than what they've had. And, and then I think they're just beefing up some of their um, front-end authentication capabilities. You know, they're making sure their secure cookies really are secure cookies and can't be moved from one machine to another. Um, looking at their challenge questions, you know, the, the way that the, um, the FFIEC supplement suggested, and making sure that the questions are more out-of-wallet type questions, questions that a fraudster can't find out if they you know, happen to peruse somebody's Facebook page or, or, or a LinkedIn account. Um, but I think you know, a lot of the investments have, have still yet to be made um, in that mid and smaller size institution. And I don't know if you can just say generally where you see some of these institutions lacking in their investments, or is it too difficult to make a broad statement like that? Do we need to break it down by institution size? Just remember that the, the larger institutions are further along, um, and, and a lot of the, the issues that we see you know, will more pertain to the smaller institutions. But so, so for the most part, I think we see institutions lacking in um, anomaly detection. You know, even just the, the most fundamental, basic, simple type of anomaly detection where, you know, let's say a certain company sends a, a, a wire out, um, you know, every month on the 30th of the month for $800,000 or whatever it is. Um, and all of a sudden, there's a different routing number on that wire, different from it's been for the past year. Something like that should be flagged as an anomaly. Um, and, and, you know, just simple things like that, N not even necessarily much more complex anomalies that, you know, people are logging in at certain times and from different IP addresses and the navigation is different than it had been, pre you know, previously, which it certainly gives you a lot more power behind your anomaly detection, but even at, at the most fundamental level. So I think that, that that's really the area where we see um, most institutions lacking at this point in time. And have you actually spoken with any institutions, George, who've undergone audits? I have not. I have not. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Um, but I, I, of all the ones I've talked to, they, they haven't received the audit yet. And a lot of the smaller institutions I talk to don't even know really when to expect their audit. And I guess just based on your own perception and based on maybe some of the, the things that you're hearing from financial institutions, even though you haven't spoken with anyone who's undergone an audit, do you think that we can expect an FAQ from the FFIEC in coming months? Just something to clarify certain points of the guidance? Yeah, I think that once the examination start, the feedback starts to come back, um, you know, in, in, into the agencies on trying to find some common issues and some common questions that the institutions actually have uh, when the examiners go in. So this is you know, really direct input from the examiners in the field back into um, you know, the policy writers and policy makers um, in, in, the, in the regulatory agencies. Um, once they, they start to see some consistent issues and consistent questions and consistent problems, um, 
I, I think that's when you'll see an FAQ. That may be something that you'd see uh, several months out from now. And then what about mobile? Do you expect the FFIC to issue some sort of addendum or FAQ that directly touches on authentication requirements for mobile banking? There may be mention of it in an FAQ, uh, a very brief mention, but I, I think that in the same way the agencies really spent you know, well over a year looking at some of the issues in the industry um, that have occurred since the last or you know, since the first FFIEC authentication uh, guidance was put out, you know, the agencies tend to spend a lot of time. You know, they spend time with um, the financial institutions, with you know, the vendors, with you know, various experts, and try to weigh um, the inputs from you know, from uh, all those sources. And then each of the agencies focus on a different part of the market. So then they have to talk to each other and sort of see things somewhat the same. You know, before the FFIAC, you know, sort of gets together to do a regulation. So I think that we're still in that discovery phase right now with mobile banking where behind the scenes there's a lot happening in terms of uh, analysis and getting a read on what's happening right now in the market and what to expect over the next month and year. Um, and then I think you'll see the regulators um, issue something, I think, separate um, on mobile banking. It, you know, it may be another addendum to the authentication guidance, which, which probably makes the most sense. That way they don't have to uh, go through the extra hoops they need to issue something completely new. Um, and, and, and this authentication guidance was designed somewhat to be a living document that was updated periodically. So I think you may see an update that specifically focuses on mobile banking um, in, in a little bit more you know, distant future, maybe you know, very late this year. On the positive side, so far in the mobile banking space, what banks have out there is really fairly benign um, in terms of what a criminal might do if they got access to mobile banking. Uh, there's information that could be had, but for the most part, money movement is only uh, within um, online banking bill pay, and the money can only happen to payees that have been previously registered um, within online banking. And you know, other than that, there may be transfers um, within the same account. You know, we are starting to see more P2P uh, types types of um, services offered. So, I, so I think as that rolls out more, and we start to see some of the implications of that, um, and, and whether or not there's any fraudulent activity in that space, that will maybe you know accelerate. Um, how, how fast the regulators get something on mobile banking out. And this is a nice transition to my next question. You've noted in the past that banks and credit unions shouldn't get too hung up on the ways that they secure specific channels, such as mobile. Instead, they should aim for cross-channel or enterprise-level security. Would you still agree that that's the best approach? I, I, I certainly think so. Um, it's, it's the approach that you know, in every top-tier bank is, is doing um, or implementing or investigating you know, at one level or another. We find that customers use multiple channels. You know, there's not somebody that signs up for mobile banking and all they do is mobile banking, um, but they may do mobile banking and have a debit card and a credit card and visit the branch every now and then. And, you know, and so it's important to watch the entire relationship with the customer and, and look at what's happening across the channels uh, versus isolating just single instances of, of channel usage. It gives you a much better picture um, 
of what's happening with that customer and, and potential fraud that may be happening in that account. So, you know, if, if you just look at a single channel like, you know, the, the call center where somebody comes in and asks for money to be sent to what they may call, you know, an associate's account or a friend's account, and they have all the information they need, you know, the, the person in the call center may not realize that there have been a tremendous amount of online banking activity. Uh, the person may have been in the branch looking for additional information from, you know, the branch personnel. And then, you know, we're trying to find potential fraud just sitting within that one channel, which, you know, you, you may or may not catch, but when you see the fuller picture of what the activity that's been happening on that account, um, you certainly can get a much better read on potential fraud. So, George, when we talk about <laughs> cross-channel fraud prevention, are there any nuances that institutions should consider? So the, the biggest challenge I see with cross-channel and implementing a cross-channel fraud prevention capability is really organizational because it, it touches so many parts of the company. You know, whenever you're putting in a cross-channel or enterprise class type of technology, it sort of gets everybody involved. If you're doing it right, if you're, if you're trying to get something through in the background and not involving the right people in the organization, then you, know, you run into other problems. So, you know, first of all, whoever is the champion for a, a cross-channel fraud prevention approach really needs to be inclusive and needs to understand how the the platform, how the technology is going to benefit various constituencies within the organization, you know, whether, whether it's the customer service folks, the product management folks, the fraud folks, the loss prevention folks, and, and, and really understand how it touches them so they could sell the project to them as, you know, as well as work with them on an ongoing basis. Um, now, you know, when it comes to a more granular level of, of the technology, institutions should look at putting things in a phased approach so that they're not trying to, you know, boil the ocean and throw an entire system in, the, you know, thinking they could flip a switch and suddenly everything's going to work fine. But they need to, you know, you know maybe look at a few of their um, higher priority channels, their higher risk channels is implementing uh, first. And then, you know, it's start including other channels um, as you go along. You know, maybe first implementing a common case management platform that takes feeds from all the channels and normalizes some of the alerts that are coming out so, you know, the, the, the fraud analyst can start to look at and prioritize fraud that's happening within the channels differently and, and start to be able to use the case management tool to pull in information from other channels and from other back-end systems to do a better job of, of analyzing the fraud. Probably the overall recommendation is, is to plan for it, build the architecture, think about what it's going to look like when the institution's done, but then really carefully think about the steps that need to be taken to get there. And, you know, so phase it into multiple project pieces, tangible deliverables every step of the way. And what recommendations, George, would you offer to institutions that have not yet undergone an audit? On what should they focus? Well, first of all, every institution should have done a risk assessment, and they need to have that in hand, I think, when uh, the examiner comes in. Secondly, they have to show progress. They have to show that they've been doing something um, for the past six months, and they didn't just start looking at this thing, you know, in January. That 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 won't be <laughs> that won't produce a good result. And then they have to have a plan. They have to be able to demonstrate that they're they're going somewhere. They understand what it is they need to do, and these are the steps they're going to take. And you know, maybe it's it's demoing or you know putting a bait out of a certain technology, or but they really have to show that uh, this is something they're taking seriously. They have taken seriously and there's a plan in place to, to get them in compliance within a, a specific time frame. 
And then finally, before we close, I wanted to ask generally, what broad trends are you most concerned about for banks as we start 2012? I, I think it's the same ones we, we've been concerned with. It's it's you know the the man in the browser type of attack um, that we've seen um, occur across a lot of institutions, and and I think that what the the um, regulators are requiring is certainly going to help institutions mitigate that type of fraud. But I think that you know, for at least a half a year, until at least the majority of institutions get into compliance, they're, they're still very vulnerable. And I think you'll see the, the fraudsters um, start to focus on the smaller institutions and the mid-sized institutions that they know um, take longer to get into compliance. Um, so, so I think we'll continue to see those problems um, for, you know, for several months. And as we roll out more payment capabilities in the mobile channel, it, you know, as much as I could say all the institutions I've, I've spoken with and all the vendors are doing just a tremendous job and really putting security first and really thinking about uh, the implications of, of offering payments in that channel, we always miss something. And the criminals always find whatever it was we missed. Um, that's one thing you can count on. Um, so you know, we will see vulnerabilities. I mean, hopefully uh, the way it's being developed, it, it's, it's mitigating most of the ones that we could think of, but there's always something you didn't think of. George, I want to thank you again for your time today. Oh, very, very welcome. It's great talking to you. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.